Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlib. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Today's show is about Rebecca Kulshaw. She is one of the smartest critics of the AIDS paradigm. But before I talk about her, I'd like to read something my late friend Nicholas Regish wrote. Nick was a producer for ABC News and was also a very sharp and informed critic of the AIDS paradigm. This little commentary appeared on ABC.com in 2000. Nick wrote it around the time his book The Virus Within was published. That book was about HH36, and one of the reasons he wrote it was that I had been nagging him about the importance of HH36 for years. Okay, here is the piece titled is disagreeing with prevailing HIV paradigm a criminal offense? As science appears to be the new religion in our culture, those deemed to be in disagreement with its articles of truth should expect they might be portrayed as heretics. A brazen example of this attempt to squash unorthodoxy can be seen in the March 29 edition of Newsday. Reporter Lori Garrett writes that Canadian virologist Mark Weinberg, president of the International AIDS Society, has suggested that actions of those skeptical of the prominent theory that HIV causes AIDS warrant criminal prosecution. That's right, criminal prosecution. Weinberg believes those who argue that HIV is not the cause of AIDS are, in effect, promoting the spread of HIV and hampering efforts to prevent HIV infection. In other words, because there is a strong sense of scientific unity among AIDS researchers, those publicly questioning HIV science are in denial and are being obstinate in spreading counter views about how AIDS develops. They are therefore dangerous and must be shut down. This tone and view is all too reminiscent of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, which considered those who disagreed with its teachings to be a threat to society. Because the mathematician Galileo Galilei agreed with the Copernican theory that planets move around the sun, he was forced to recant before the Inquisition and ended up spending the rest of his years in Florence under house arrest. Centuries later, I'm sitting at my desk actually wondering whether I might be labeled a heretic and hauled before a science board. Might writing a book questioning some of the prevailing science qualify for a new inquisition? Last week, I was on the Canadian leg of a promotional tour from my book, The Virus Within, and found myself facing repeated verbal attacks by Weinberg. 
He followed me on at least six radio and television shows, sometimes pleading with the public not to buy my book. He referred to it as dangerous and irresponsible. My book focuses a lot of attention on a herpes virus named HHV6, which scientists have shown can cause a lot of havoc in individuals with impaired immune systems. The virus was identified in 1986 by a team led by Dr. Robert Gallo of the National Cancer Institute. Gallo is the co-discoverer of HIV. The book mainly charts the progress of HHV6 research conducted largely by Milwaukee scientists and how this might help scientists understand the complex way viruses behave in the body. It focuses particularly in patients suffering from AIDS, multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and bone marrow transplant difficulties. Weinberg, apparently, is incensed that the book turns a sharp focus on HHV6 as a potential contributor to AIDS, while raising serious questions about the current strong single focus on HIV as the cause of AIDS. In a review of my book on April 1st in the Montreal Gazette, he said my book may appeal to fringe elements in that it presents a series of misleading and simplistic assumptions about some of the most complex diseases known to occur. Fortunately, there is still a spectrum of opinion on most scientific matters that includes some voices of reason. A couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with virologist Luc Montagnier, the discoverer of HIV. We disagree strongly on the role of HIV and AIDS. He does firmly believe that HIV causes AIDS, while I still think science has yet to prove the relationship. Yet this week, Montagnier wrote to me and endorsed my book, saying I had made a strong case for the need to broaden the scope of scientific inquiry into the complex nature of chronic illnesses and even AIDS itself. In the spirit of public education, I have offered Weinberg the opportunity to take me on one-on-one -on -one in a public debate on HIV and AIDS with an impartial moderator. Such a debate would also be produced online. I suggested on at least eight or nine radio and TV shows in Canada that he should have it out with me. He claimed that he didn't have the time. He then said as president of the International AIDS Society he didn't want to give me any credibility. The danger here is that these scientists hide away from the real challenges because they set themselves apart from the more mundane aspects of daily inquiry, like the ongoing, freely expressed search for truth, open debate, and self-correction that are required in scientific research. Okay, that was Nick Regish's piece, Is Disagreeing with Prevailing HIV Paradigm a Criminal Offense? Mark Weinberg will not be arresting any AIDS heretics anytime soon because he drowned while on vacation in Florida in April. But one of the people he might have wanted to round up is Rebecca Colshaw, and here she is talking to an AIDS dissident who went by the name of Goss. You can find this on YouTube, and I hope you can ignore the music that is playing in the background of the interview. And I understand you've done quite a bit of work in HIV research. Uh, what, what specific sort of work have you done in the field of HIV research? The models that I've worked on have been basically theoretical models of HIV progression within an individual body. So what I'm looking at is I'm looking at different populations of cells and or virus particles and seeing how they interact over time and modeling how the progression of disease will be within one particular individual. Now, that's just the basic kind of model, of course. There are different sorts of things that you can look at. And what I specifically dealt with was models that looked at the interaction between T-cells 
that were healthy T cells that are infected with virus and um, the natural killer immune response or um, killer T cells and their role in disease progression. And looking at that, I use a branch of mathematics that's called optimal control theory to examine the effects of different treatment strategies on the system over time. Okay. Now, recently you wrote an article which was published at lourockwell.com entitled Why I Quit HIV, which has generated a great deal of controversy. Did you actually quit HIV research altogether? Uh, more or less. I'm no longer working on modeling um, HIV dynamics. I've never worked with HIV in the lab, so I wasn't quitting it in that respect. But, but yes, I don't, I don't work in HIV but research you, you, anymore. You quit uh, working with, with modeling of, uh, of HIV uh, That's correct. dynamics. Um, well, the first question that comes to my mind is, is, you know, why would you more or less, I mean, essentially uh, throw away such a, 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 a lucrative part of your career like that? I mean, people quit their jobs all the time for whatever reasons, but it's pretty unusual for someone to spend years at a university to get their PhD, then spend a decade in their chosen career, only to decide one day, you know, this is, this is all garbage and just up and quit, um, particularly at a time when HIV research is so lucrative. Why did you do it? Uh, strictly from the standpoint of mathematical biology, what was it about HIV that to you simply doesn't add up? No pun intended. Well, let me just preface this by saying that I didn't actually quit my job. Um, I work in a university as a mathematics professor, and so research is one part of my job. I've quit working on the particular research emphasis that I've been working on for a long time. But the question as to why I would, why I would quit, um, it didn't happen all of a sudden. I spent quite a few years with my doubts growing and growing about this field and it really it, it took me a long time before I could decide that I just can no longer in good conscience work on something that doesn't seem to have a whole lot of basis in scientific reality. To answer the second part of your question about what it was about the mathematics that didn't add up is a big problem that permeates all of HIV research and also a lot of modern medicine. And that's the fact that very few clinical outcomes are actually measured in terms of whether a patient is doing well or getting better or living or dying. Everything is measured by surrogate markers. And as we know, with HIV, the surrogate markers that they look at are viral load levels and CD4 or helper T cell levels. And of necessity, of course, a mathematical model can't really examine clinical health. You're always looking at numbers. You're looking at quantities. And that would be fine in and of itself if there were any evidence that these surrogate markers really had very much to do with clinical health at all. Just as one example, I saw a study come out just this week, and I think it was out of Africa, but I, I can't remember, so forgive me if I've gotten this wrong, but they were examining a bunch of pregnant HIV-positive mothers, and they were looking at mothers who had taken antiretroviral treatment versus those that had not. And the ones that were taking the anti-HIV treatment, their transmission rate was a lot lower, but the, high, the mortality rate of the infants was far, far higher than the infants not on the antiretroviral drugs. So that's just one example of how the surrogate markers don't seem to have a lot to do necessarily with clinical health. But the problem is actually a lot worse than that because when you look at the HIV model, almost all of what we're looking at is we want to maximize levels of CD4 and we want to minimize levels of viral load. And that would be fine, except for the fact that viral load has absolutely no correlation with health or even with infectious virus at all. And most people will be surprised to know this, but if you actually look at the literature, there is scant, if any, evidence to support viral load as a marker of health whatsoever. Just to give 
listeners an idea of what's going on when people measure viral load. It's not actually counting the number of infectious viruses in the blood. It uses a technique called PCR, which is the polymerase chain reaction. And it's used to amplify, I believe, less than 3% of HIV's genetic structure in order to make some sort of an estimate of how much free virus is floating around in the blood. The problem is, though, that even official estimates say that viral load overestimates infectious virus by a factor of 60,000, which means that if you have a viral load of 60,000, that means you have, at best, one infectious viral particle per unit of blood. But it gets, it gets actually worse than that because some of the best literature shows that viral load has absolutely no correlation with infectious virus. One of the very first papers that was ever published on HIV viral load was the 1993 Piotics paper, and he had, I think, 60-some HIV patients. 50% of his patients with a detectable viral load had no evidence of virus by culture. And an Australian mathematician named Mark Craddock actually looked at the correlation between viral load and infectious virus for all of the patients, and he found that the correlations were almost zero. And what a correlation is, it just measures. One of the reasons that people look at these anti-HIV medications and think that they work so well is because we see results of people's CD4s going up immediately after they start taking medications. Well, anytime you put something that's biochemically active into your body, your immune system is going to react. And one of the things that it does when it reacts is it creates more CD4 cells. It's just like if you expect there to be a bunch of crime in a town on a certain holiday weekend, you're going to have a lot more police forces in place. You know, you can think of the CD4 cells as police officers. And so people don't realize that having high counts are not necessarily healthy. In fact, they're often indicative of autoimmune disorders or allergies. And there's so much variation between, you know, from individual to individual. You hear the or for that matter, but from, from one time of the day to the next, I mean, as I understand it, you can take two, two CD4 counts, you know, two different times of the day from the same patient and, and get two different results. Well, this is absolutely true. And this is actually a really very profound result in terms of the way that we look at disease in the post-HIV era from how we looked at disease beforehand, because more than 50% of all American AIDS cases have been diagnosed based on a one-time CD4 count that's less than 200. Now, that's not necessarily the most recent count. It's not an average. All it is is one count below 200. It doesn't matter if the count went up above 200. If you have, if you're HIV positive and you have one CD4 count below 200, you're considered to be an AIDS patient. But it's just like you say, you can take 10 different measurements and you're going to have 10 different, quite often very different values for the same person. And if you take enough counts on one person over time, you're virtually guaranteed to have a low count at some point. Rebecca Colshaw received her Ph.D. in 2002 for work constructing mathematical models of HIV infection, a field of study she had entered in 1996. In an essay titled Why I Quit HIV, available online, she said that her entire adolescence and adult life, quote, has been overshadowed by the belief of a deadly sexually transmittable pathogen and the attendant fear of intimacy and lack of trust that belief engenders. Unquote. During her work on AIDS, she came to realize, quote, that there is good evidence that the entire basis for this theory is wrong. AIDS, it seems, is not a disease so much as a socio-political construct that few people understand and even fewer question. End quote. At one point earlier in her life, she was led to believe that she had contracted AIDS and she took an HIV test. She spent two weeks waiting for the results convinced she was going to die and blaming herself for whatever she might have done to cause the development. She tested negative and vowed not to take more risks. Ten years later, when she was a graduate student analyzing models of HIV and the immune system, 
she was surprised to discover that virtually every mathematical model of HIV infection she studied was unrealistic. She concluded that, quote, the biological assumptions on which the models were based varied from author to author, unquote. She was also puzzled by the stories of long-term survivors of AIDS and the fact that all of them seemed to have one thing in common, very healthy lifestyles. It made her suspect that being HIV positive didn't necessarily mean you would ever get AIDS. When she ran across the writing of one of Peter Duesberg's supporters, David Rasnick, it all began to make more sense to her. Rasnick had written an article on AIDS and the corruption of modern science, which resonated with her own troubling academic experience. She found an intellectual soulmate when she read Rasnick's assertion that the more he, quote, examined HIV, the less it made sense that this largely inactive, barely detectable virus could cause such devastation, unquote. Kulshaw continued to work on HIV, however, and published four papers on HIV from a mathematical modeling perspective. She wrote, quote, I justified my contributions to a theory I wasn't convinced of by telling myself these were purely theoretical mathematical constructs never to be applied to the real world. I supposed in some sense also I wanted to keep an open mind, unquote. But eventually she reached a breaking point on HIV. She had been taught early in her career that clear definitions were important and, as far as she could tell, the definition of AIDS was anything but. AIDS was not even a consistent entity. She was concerned that the definition of AIDS in the early 1980s was a surveillance tool that bore no resemblance to the AIDS of the current time. She was troubled by the fact that the CDC constantly changed the definition that people could be diagnosed when there was no evidence of clinical disease and the fact that the leading cause of death of HIV positives was from liver failure caused by the AIDS treatments, protease inhibitors, themselves. The epidemiology completely puzzled her. The fact that the number of HIV positives in the United States, quote, has remained constant at 1 million, unquote, seemed to make no sense. She wrote, quote, it is deeply confusing that a virus thought to have been brought to the AIDS epicenters of New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in the early 1970s could possibly have spread so rapidly at first, yet have stopped spreading as soon as testing began, unquote. She had entered the gates of the opposite world of totalitarian Orwellian abnormal science where the numbers of positives could remain constant because their origins were political and not based on factuality. She also thought that the theories about how HIV destroyed T cells didn't add up, and she was disturbed that after so many years of study, there was still no biological consensus about the manner in which HIV did its dirty work. Kulshaw was frustrated by the fact that, quote, there are no data to support the hypothesis that HIV kills cells. It doesn't in the test tube. It mostly just sits there as it does in people if it can be found at all, unquote. The shocking fact that Robert Gallo had originally only found the virus in 26 of 72 AIDS patients was also a dramatic strike against the notion that it was the cause of AIDS. Kulshaw found further support for her growing skepticism in the testing for HIV, which relies on antibody tests rather than searching for the virus itself because, quote, there exists no test for the actual virus, unquote. 
The fact that so-called viral load tests relied on sophisticated PCR techniques that have never actually been tested against a gold standard of HIV itself made the whole enterprise of HIV testing look like a cruel and dangerous farce. The fact that the criteria for a positive result for the antibody varied from country to country also undermined the credibility of the HIV tests. Rebecca Colshaw concluded, quote, I have come to sincerely believe that the HIV tests do immeasurably more harm than good due to their astounding lack of specificity and standardization. A negative test may not be accurate, whatever that means, but a positive one can create utter havoc and destruction in a person's life, all for a virus that most likely does absolutely nothing. I do not feel it is going too far to say that these tests ought to be banned for diagnostic purposes." Unquote. She indicted thousands of her intellectual and professional colleagues when she wrote, quote, after 10 years involved in the academic side of HIV research, as well as in the academic world at large, I truly believe that the blame for the universal, unconditional, faith-based acceptance of such a flawed theory fall on those among us who have actively endorsed a completely unproven hypothesis in the interests of furthering our careers, unquote. Colshaw summed up her thoughts on AIDS in a brief but brilliant book called Science Sold Out, which was published by North Atlantic Books. The book is so tautly written and sizzles with so much moral outrage that one could say that she was the Thomas Paine, or one of them, of what I call Holocaust II. She opens the book with an anecdotal challenge to HIV from her own personal life. Quote, the boyfriend of a woman I work with died suddenly this year from a raging infection. He became very ill and his immune system collapsed, unable to handle the infection, and he died. He was not HIV positive, but if he had been, he would have been an AIDS case, unquote. While most of the AIDS dissidents focused mainly on what was diagnosed mistakenly as AIDS, diagnosis they disagreed with, it is interesting that she begins her little masterpiece with a case that might inadvertently have pointed to a far darker implication of the CDC and the AIDS establishment's misguided epidemiology, namely that they were missing the real epidemic and as a result an unknown number of people were dying mysteriously. None of the arguments in her book were completely new, but her presentation was a tour de force. She also brought an astute political and sociological analysis to the table that helped make what I've called Holocaust II more understandable as a historic event. She wrote, quote, AIDS has become so mired in emotion, hysteria, and politics that it is no longer primarily a health issue. AIDS has been transported out of the realm of public and personal health and into a strange new world in which pronouncements by powerful governmental officials are taken as gospel, and no one remembers when, a few years later, these pronouncements turn out to be false. That the scientific establishment has been so quick to accept the HIV theory was shocking. The willingness of the public to trust proclamations from the government on the issue was also unsettling. She made it her job to try and sort out the sociological reasons for the rush to judgment and the bizarre and stubborn anti-scientific refusal to entertain second and third opinions on the matter. As Rebecca Colshaw looked back at the history of AIDS, she saw a disturbing pattern that made it appear as if scientists were making everything up haphazardly and illogically as they went along. She wrote, quote, science, of course, 
is meant to be self-correcting, but it seems to be endemic in HIV research that rather than continuously building an accumulating body of secure knowledge with only occasional missteps, the bulk of the structure gets knocked down every three to four years, replaced by yet another hypothesis, standard of care, or definition of what exactly AIDS really is. The new structure eventually gets knocked down in the same fashion, unquote. Inadvertently, she was actually sensing the totalitarian, abnormal, deviant, ad hoc, criminal nature of the scientific opposite world she had stumbled into. She could grasp the hypocritical and dishonest nature of the infernal game that was being played in the name of science when she wrote, quote, even more disturbing is the fact that HIV researchers continuously claim that certain papers' results are out of date, yet have absolutely no hesitation in citing the entire body of scientific research on HIV as massive, overwhelming evidence in favor of HIV. They can't have it both ways, yet this is what they try to do, unquote. In the opposite world of AIDS, science meant having everything, every which way, all the time. As Rebecca Colshaw wrestles with the question of why so many scientists could be so wrong for so long, she points out that, contrary to the HIV establishment's propaganda, a significant number of scientists actually did join Duisburg in his skepticism and dissent. One of the more interesting scientists she mentions is Rodney Richards, a chemist who worked for the company Amgen developing the first HIV antibody tests. Rodney Richards contends that the antibody tests are at best measuring a condition called hypergammaglobulinemia, a word that simply means too many antibodies to too many things. Rebecca Colshaw agreed with the HIV AIDS critic David Rasnick that a contributing factor in the reign of scientific error is an epidemic of low standards that is infecting all of academic scientific research. She argued that, quote, it was almost inevitable that a very significant scientific mistake was going to be made, unquote. Kulshaw was very critical of the AIDS establishment's refusal to publicly discuss and defend its science. She wrote, if the AIDS establishment is so convinced of the validity of what they say, they should have no fear of a public debate between the major orthodox and dissenting scientists and the scrutiny of such a debate by the scientific community. Scrutiny to AIDS researchers was like sunlight to vampires. Kulshaw was just as flabbergasted at the very strange moment that HTLV-3 was transformed politically into the AIDS virus as the rest of the Duisburgians. She wrote, quote, It was sometime in 1985 that HIV conspicuously went from the virus associated with AIDS to the virus that causes AIDS, squelching debate in the scientific arena. What changed? What happened to make scientists come to such certainty? If you look at the actual papers, she wrote, you'll see quite clearly that the answer is nothing. In other words, this life and death matter was settled by politics and public relations rather than anything resembling normal science. HIV AIDS, according to Colshaw, then became a machine they kept moving despite all effort at dissent. It had an evil life of its own. Kulshaw focuses on the protease inhibitor part of the tragedy of what I call Holocaust II by walking her readers through the chronology of the questionable science that the so-called cocktails were based on. Papers by David Ho, Times Man of the Year, and a scientist named Wee, 
that were published in Nature inspired an approach to treating AIDS of hit hard, hit early, that was to turn the hoodwinked and cheering gay community into one big deadly iatrogenic AIDS cocktail party. The only problem with the cocktails, according to Colshaw, was that few people are aware that the conclusions that supported the approach were based on poorly constructed mathematical models, and to make matters worse, the statistical analysis were poorly done and the graphs were presented in such a way as to lead the reader to believe something different from what the data supported. Deceptive abnormal science was alive and well during the David Ho HIV-AIDS cocktail era. Ho's slovenly work was called groundbreaking by Sir John Maddox of Nature, who said that it provided a compelling reason that the critics of HIV, especially Peter Duesberg, should recant. A perfect word for the AIDS Inquisition. Rebecca Colshaw saw the circular logic game of molding data to fit the theory being played out in AIDS in the mathematics-based papers that were used to justify the protease inhibitor era, noting that such tactics, by definition, are excellent at maintaining a facade of near-perfect correlation between HIV and AIDS and of providing seemingly convincing explanations of HIV pathogenesis. Once again, the public relations requirements of the HIV-AIDS paradigm were being serviced by the fancy footwork of abnormal science. The inexorable nature of Holocaust II is captured in the fact that even though the whole papers have been debunked by both establishment and dissenting researchers on biological as well as mathematical grounds, the therapies that were concoctions based on that discredited science are used to this very day. The reader stares in helpless horror at the atrocities of the HIV-AIDS era, as Colshaw reiterates that, quote, a large population of people have been and continue to be treated on the basis of a theory that is unsupportable. End quote. Rebecca Colshaw's moral outrage is riveting. She wrote, quote, you might imagine that people might feel an urge to discuss the manner in which the papers got published and whether other such mistakes have happened since that time. You might imagine that the failure of the peer review process to detect such patently inept research would send off alarm bells within the HIV research community. You would be wrong, end quote. Without calling it virtual iatrogenic genocide, or iatrogenocide as I call it, she indicts a whole generation of clinicians who continued to base their treatment of patients on Ho's work. She wrote, quote, HIV researchers know the Ho papers are wrong, yet they continue along the clinical path charted by the papers. They know that the quantitative use of PCR has never been validated yet they continue to use viral load to make clinical decisions. One thinks about the proverbial story of the drunk looking for his car keys in the parking lot under a light far from his actual car because that's the only place there is a light. When one reads this analysis from Colshaw about a scientist's discovery in the first so-called AIDS patient, she writes, quote, Upon measuring their T-cells, a subset of the immune system, he found that in all five men, they were depleted. What is quite curious about this discovery is that the technology to count T-cells had only just been perfected, end quote. This is yet another way of saying that epidemics never get a second chance to make a first impression. Shiny new toys can create erroneous new paradigms in science. Colshaw gets to the crux of the AIDS establishment's mistake, 
by noting that they rushed to judgment on HIV, and then they were trapped and had to trim data and cook the books like the frantic maintainers of a threatened Ponzi scheme in order to fit their stubborn theories to match disparities in the growing number of people they were designating as having AIDS. She writes, quote, as the definition expanded and as it became more and more clear that HIV did not do all that it was purported to do, that is, kill CD4 T-cells by any detectable method, researchers began to invent more and more convoluted explanations for why their theory was correct, end quote. Good money was constantly thrown after bad. Of course, from my perspective, had they also expanded the definition so much as to include the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, things might have miraculously straightened themselves out, and HHV6 role in the hypergammaglobulinemia epidemic might have become painfully obvious. She writes, quote, the logical thing to have done would have been to notice their original disease designation did not accurately identify the causative agent or agents. Rather than changing the syndrome, throw out the supposed causative agents and find one that explained the observations better. As we know, this has not happened, end quote. Rebecca Kulshaw decried the bogus logic behind the universal celebration of protease inhibitors, noting that, quote, the proportion of AIDS cases that resulted in death experienced a large drop in 1993 to 1994, which orthodoxy and the mass media were more than happy to portray as decreased mortality thanks to protease inhibitors. However, protease inhibitors were not even generally available to AIDS patients until 1996, over two years after the decline in the death rate began. She challenged the notion that they had been proved to extend life and argued that one only had to look at the packet inserts to see they could, quote, cause debilitating side effects, some of which are indistinguishable from the symptoms of AIDS itself, unquote. She was horrified by the insane logic of HIV drug manufacturers who would insist, quote, that since someone who was healthy when they started therapy happened to stay healthy for some time on the drugs, that is some sort of credit to the medications, end quote. She warned that there is no evidence to say that they would not have remained healthy even if they never took any medication at all. She noted that the HIV establishment had basically gamed the system by never using placebo controls so that it could not be determined if nothing was actually better than the AIDS drugs. Do no harm was a quaint joke from the distant past. As far as the reports of the supposedly positive effects upon very sick people who took the drugs, she pointed out, as others had, that reverse transcriptase inhibitors are nonspecific cell killers and in addition to harming healthy cells, could be attacking, quote, those cells that are dividing fastest, such as the opportunistic bacteria and fungi that were the cause of illnesses in AIDS patients. In other words, their reputation was based on the mistaken impression that it was their effect on HIV rather than the other infections involved in the syndrome. She noted that protease inhibitors had been shown to control two of the more important infections associated with AIDS, candida and pneumocystis. Kulshaw came down hard on the absurd Orwellian invention of the term immune restitution syndrome, which was used to explain away the development of opportunistic infections that occurred when people were taking the miraculous protease inhibitors. The convenient ad hoc explanation 
was that the immune system of AIDS patients was getting confused as it was getting stronger. She slapped that one down, writing that, quote, in reality, it seems to be just another attempt to explain away the fact that clearly the medications are not working as they were intended, end quote. She zeroed in on one of the most disturbing consequences of all this when she wrote, Consider also that the leading cause of death among medicated HIV positives is no longer even an AIDS-defining disease at all, but liver failure, a well-documented effect of protease inhibitors. Throughout the epidemic, where there was AIDS, there was also state coercion, the social and political face of totalitarian science, which was sponsored by the inexorable public health logic of the HIV-AIDS establishment. Kulshaw noted, quote, Infants born to HIV-positive mothers are in many states forced to undergo antiretroviral therapy, and since only a few drugs have been approved for children, the drugs administered are the most toxic, AZT and nevirapine being foremost. Oftentimes, this drug regimen begins before the baby is born, in certain cases against the wishes of the mother and continues throughout childhood, end quote. And the tragedy was cruelly compounded by the fact that half of the HIV-positive babies revert to negative in any case. Unforgivable iatrogenic scars from the age of medical atrocities were everywhere. Hopefully historians will do a good job one day of documenting them for posterity. In terms of the real underlying pandemic of HHV6, it is interesting that Kulshaw zeroed in on the politically motivated nature of concocting a definition of AIDS as a disease characterized mainly by the decline of CD4 cells. She writes, quote, but what was known from the beginning of AIDS, though bizarrely not investigated to nearly the extent that CD4 cells have been investigated, was that AIDS patients suffered disruptions in many subsets of their blood cells. Virtually all of these patients had elevated levels of many different types of antibodies, indicating that something had gone wrong with the antibody arm of the immune system. God forbid that they had looked at what was going on in the antibody arm of the immune systems of CFS patients and the rest of the general population suffering from immunological illnesses. In her book, as she had done in her previous essay, she emphasized that the HIV tests themselves were an unreliable technical mess and was horrified at how diagnostics that were some of the worst tests ever manufactured in terms of standardization, specificity, and reproducibility were being used as a weapon of discrimination ever since testing began. Everything about the way viral proteins were identified as belonging to HIV she found questionable. She described one of the common tests, the ELISA, this way, quote, the proteins are present in a mixture and the serum reacts with the proteins in such a way as to cause a color change. The color change is not discrete, meaning that everyone has varying degrees of reaction. It gets totally Alice in Wonderlandish as she notes that there are varying degrees of the color change and a cutoff value has been established above which the sample is considered reactive or positive and below which it is considered negative. Clearly this language is absurd since positive and negative are polarities and not positions on a sliding scale, she writes. Such was the crazy way medical tests were conducted in the reign of abnormal science that was AIDS. 
Kulshaw also noted that everyone could test positive for HIV depending on how the serum was diluted when the tests were run. She was inadvertently saying more about the catastrophic effects of HHV6 on the body when she pointed out that tests were actually detecting the previously mentioned condition of hypergammaglobulinemia, or, quote, having too many antibodies to too many things. Again, it must be pointed out that, unknown to her and her colleagues in AIDS descent, the biomedical face of the complex HHV6 catastrophe was simultaneously revealing itself in the widespread chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic in the form of people having too many antibodies to too many things. The other thing which she pointed out, which connected with the oft-detected evidence of retroviral activity in chronic fatigue syndrome, was the possibility that the HIV test was simply detecting endogenous retroviral activity, hence just an artifact or epiphenomenon of the biological chaos that was going on in the bodies of AIDS patients. The retroviral activity could be, quote, simply a marker for cell decay or division, end quote. And again, the fact that the HIV test had never been validated against the gold standard of HIV isolation decimated their credibility, or should have. Kulshaw could see that the slovenly and shady science of HIV had led America and the rest of the world into an ethical quagmire. She wrote, quote, since the diagnosis HIV positive carries with it such a stigma and the potential for outrageous denial of human rights, it is only humane that doctors, AIDS researchers, and test manufacturers would want to make absolutely certain that the tests they are promoting are completely verifiable in the best way possible. This is not happening." End quote. Like some of the other HIV critics, she pointed out that the retrovirus had never been unquestionably isolated in an irrefutable way in the first place, and still hadn't been, potentially making AIDS one of the biggest scientific mistakes and scandals in history. She reinforced the point, writing, quote, you might think that with hundreds of billions of dollars spent so far on HIV, there would have been, by now, a scientific attempt to demonstrate HIV isolation by publication of proper electron micrographs. The fact that there has not indicates quite strongly that no one has been able to do so, end quote. In addition to the HIV test not working reliably, she also questioned the viral load test, which is used to, quote, estimate the health status of those already diagnosed HIV positive because there is good reason to believe it does not work at all. She pointed to a paper that indicated fully one half of patients with detectable viral loads had no evidence of virus by culture. It was as if the Three Stooges were in charge of every aspect of HIV testing. Kulshaw was uniquely sensitive to the ugly political nature of all this and perceptively saw how the HIV tests are, quote, used essentially as weapons of terror, end quote. She writes, quote, this medical terrorism reached new heights in June 2006 with the CDC's new HIV testing guidelines, which recommended that everyone between the ages of 13 and 65 be tested for antibodies to HIV. Kulshaw was outraged that the faulty tests for a virus not proven to cause AIDS could force perfectly healthy people into undergoing a regimen that will inevitably cause long-term toxic effects and even death. And a more sinister complication 
is the violation in human rights that occurs following a positive HIV test. Every state in the United States and every province in Canada maintain a list of HIV carriers in that region. Colshaw could see the heavy political hands that were keeping the hellish paradigm and draconian public health agenda in place. The AIDS orthodoxy's only counters to the points made and the questions raised consist of ad hominem attacks, including use of the term denialist, as well as stating that dissenting views have long since been discredited without any reference to exactly where those views have been discredited. She wrote that, unfortunately, words are powerful and personal attacks are very effective at silencing people. She felt that it was a campaign of fear, discrimination, and terror that has been waged aggressively by a powerful group of people whose sole motivation was and is behavior control. Of course, those would be the lucky ones. The dead ones would have no behavioral issues. More than any other AIDS critic, she came the closest to seeing the heterosexist and racist underpinnings of the whole creepy game. She wrote, quote, to understand the sociological motivations behind the HIV AIDS paradigm, one must understand the racism and homophobia that has persisted in society for centuries. It is only very recently in the timeline of history that gays and blacks have been accorded equal rights under the law, end quote. Her thinking supports my contention that what the law can give gays and blacks with one hand, epidemiology can take away with the other. Coleshaw came breathtakingly close to seeing both the forest and the trees insofar as she called it a rush to judgment at the beginning of the epidemic when the first cases of AIDS were assumed to be sexually transmitted, even though the original gay men with it had no contact with each other. She was onto the heterosexist lenses through which the original ground zero data was being observed by the venereal disease and gay-obsessed pioneers of the HIV-AIDS paradigm. And she recognized that the assumption of sexual transmission was not easily dialed back or reconsidered. In terms of the HHV-6 catastrophe, it is of interest that she recognized that, quote, despite the fact that the other viruses cytomegalovirus and herpes virus, to give two examples, were far more prevalent in AIDS patients than HIV ever was. The HIV train started rolling and hasn't lost momentum since. Would this have happened if the first AIDS patients had been heterosexuals in the prime of their lives, she asked? One of the most admirable things about Rebecca Colshaw is the fact that she was not afraid to use the fierce polemical language of moral indignation when confronting the reign of pseudoscientific evil. She wrote, quote, many of the biggest crimes committed by the AIDS orthodoxy are psychosocial and not medical at all, end quote. What the charlatans of AIDS and their white coats were doing to humanity was not something she, unlike most of her fellow scientists and intellectuals, could look away from. She wrote, quote, the discrimination leveled against those given the HIV-positive diagnosis has reached a level not seen since leprosy was common. HIV positives are the modern equivalent of lepers, and in Cuba, where they are quarantined, they're even treated as such. She wrote that the enforcers of the paradigm were, quote, vultures who will stop at nothing to prop up their paradigm, end quote. 
While Rebecca Coleshaw unfortunately didn't see the full nature of the epidemic as clearly as she might have, she came closer than many, and what she did see, she translated into an historically important outcry. She wrote, quote, the HIV theory has never been about science, but rather about behavior modification primarily, and to a lesser extent about money, power, and prestige. Language surrounding HIV and AIDS is infected with a sort of pious moralism that is completely inappropriate in science, end quote. Coleshaw could see that, tragically. There was no turning back because, quote, first of all, there are tremendous financial and social interests involved. Billions of dollars in research funding, stock options, and activist budgets are predicated on the assumptions that HIV causes AIDS. Entire industries of pharmaceutical drugs, diagnostic testing, and activist causes would have no reason to exist, end quote. Few saw the costs and consequences of the HIV theory being wrong and articulated them as dramatically as Coleshaw. It wasn't a small inconsequential scientific matter, a minor wrong turn that could be easily forgiven or forgotten. She wrote, quote, the scientific and medical communities have a great deal of face to lose. It is not much of an exaggeration to state that when the HIV AIDS hypothesis is finally recognized as wrong, the entire institution of science will lose the public's trust, and science itself will experience fundamental, profound, and long-lasting changes. The scientific community has risked its credibility by standing by the HIV theory for so long. This is why doubting the HIV hypothesis is now tantamount to doubting science itself, and this is why dissidents face excommunication." End quote. And she wasn't even aware that the fiasco included among its consequences chronic fatigue syndrome, autism, and many other mysterious epidemics that are caused by HHV6. Kolsha is fairly unique among the Duesbergians and other HIV critics, dissidents, resistance intellectuals, whatever one wants to call them. Not only was she patently not heterosexist, not only did she not spin her own alternative got-age-at-grid-think alternative lifestyle theory of AIDS, but she actually went in the opposite direction and argued that heterosexism, side-by-side side with racism, was the driving force for the biomedical dystopia that was created by the pseudoscientific HIV-AIDS paradigm. And in a near-miss, Rebecca Kolsha almost got it right when she wrote, quote, that powerful psychological forces are at work, it is simply easier for most people to project our neglect of disenfranchised groups, gay men, drug users, blacks, the poor, and so on, onto a virus and accept those infected as sacrificial victims than to recognize that there is no bug. For society, the latter would require acceptance of those disenfranchised groups as equal participants in mainstream society and culture." End quote. I think she would have won the AIDS lottery if only she had written, instead, it is simply easier for most people to project our neglect of disenfranchised groups, gay men, drug users, blacks, the poor, and so on, and ignore the threat to our own health onto the wrong politically and fraudulently framed virus and accept those labeled and scapegoated as AIDS-infected and as sacrificial victims than to recognize that we are all at risk for the real cause of this epidemic. But it was not to be. She certainly got the business about the bigoted politics right. 
But there was a virus, a very serious and deadly virus, but not a retrovirus. It was a DNA virus, one that was, even as she wrote her wonderful book, having its pathological way with both franchised and disenfranchised groups all over the world. If one were to have asked all the AIDS dissidents and critics, including Rebecca Colshaw, if the egregious errors of the AIDS medical establishment had put the heterosexual general population in more danger of becoming immune compromised, they would probably have said a resounding no. The fact that they would have been absolutely wrong, considering the HHV6 spectrum catastrophe in the general population that was masked by the HIV mistake, shows that their critical brilliance and their unique ethical bravery went only so far in the search for the ultimate truth about the epidemic. Rebecca Coulshaw failed to stop the forces of heterosexism and racism that crystallized into what I call Holocaust II. But without her efforts and the efforts of all the other dissidents, our very dark time would have been even darker. I hope you are as impressed with Rebecca Coulshaw as I am. Her book, Science Sold Out, can be found on Amazon. You can also find my book, Truth to Power, on Amazon. And check out all my books at charlesortleb.com. That's Charles, O-R-T-L-E-B, dot com. If you want to see the archive of all my past radio shows, go to ortlibradio.com. I think it is appropriate to close this particular show with a song called Written in Blood, which I wrote with Chris Davidson. It's available on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Apple, and all the streaming services. Oh, my children, our story was written in blood, our story was written in blood. We lived in a time when evil rushed in like a flood. The tiniest joy was nipped in the bud. Please tell our children to tell their children to tell their children story was written in blood our story was written in blood you were born when being alive seemed like some kind of curse everything went wrong could always get worse Many terrible things happened That I so much wanted to hide I prayed and prayed that the darkness Never destroy your pride 
written in blood 